Welcome back, everybody. This is the Bless You Boys podcast. BlessYouBoys.com is your home for all things Detroit Tigers baseball on the SB Nation platform. I'm your host, Brandon Day, and with me is my co-host, Ashley McLennan. Ashley, how's it going? Pretty awesome. Excellent. And we have a special guest for you all tonight. Um, You knew him. You may know him again after tonight, um, and you loved him. Andy Dirks, former Detroit Tigers outfielder, um, has joined us tonight, and we're going to talk a little bit about what he's been up to um, in his years since retiring. And we'll go back and talk a little bit about the you know the days with the Tigers and see if um, maybe we can get some kind of good Jim Leland horseshit type quote out of you about Jim Leland <laughs> as we go along. <laughs> so, Andy, thanks a lot for joining us tonight. Yeah, of course. Happy to do it. Uh, I don't know about it if I'm a special guest, but I'm a guest nonetheless. Uh, uh, I'm excited to be here. There's a lot of a uh, lot of good people out there on Blessing Boys. You guys do good work. I'm pumped up. Let's let's uh, see what you got for me tonight. All right, sounds awesome. good. And you know, I mean, Detroit is a town that you know that really loves its kind of blue collar players. Um, obviously, you know, Don Kelly is is revered. Um, you know, be, beyond his you know his actual stats on the playing field. Um, and I think, you know, you were, you were kind of a guy who, you know, I think fit that description for a lot of people as well. So we're pretty, uh, we're pretty excited to have you. And, you know, I thought what we would do, yeah, we, we're going to kind of start out with um, what you've been up to since, um, since leaving baseball and then kind of, we'll work back into the, into the Tigers days. Um, basically, yeah, I mean, where I wanted to start um, is in the present, um, you know, any baseball player, hears the term, uh, you know, the process a million different times, um, sticking with the process. And a big part of that is about living in the present. So we thought we'd start with um, with what you've been up to um, since you know since your retirement from baseball. Um, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about um, kind of what that was like for you making the decision to retire, and then what you've been up to since? Yeah, so transitions in life come; they're inevitable, right? They're going to happen. And I always tell people. Uh, some people say, "Man, that's it's awful." You know, two back surgeries. You're just really kind of getting to the peak of your. Uh, major league career and it's inevitable that as any athlete uh, there's going to be a time where you're going to have to step away from the game sometimes it's voluntarily uh, sometimes it's not due to injuries or different things I think anybody when you hit that that point that stage of your life it you have to step back and kind of reanalyze what you're doing because I was baseball 24 7 right it was live it, eat it, breathe it. I was playing in the Dominican in the winter, uh, playing for the Tigers all summer. Like everything in my life kind of revolved around baseball. So after it happened and I had to step out of that, that baseball role, all I did was decide, you know what? I've been successful at something. And like you said, stick to the process. I can be successful in anything I want to do. Mm-hmm. If I just use those same, that same mindset, now finding the avenue was my next step. Luckily, I was in, uh, we were in Kansas City at the time, me and my wife, looking for a house. Uh, we ended up just walking up to a house that we saw a picture of and saying, hey, we like this one. There happened to be a realtor there who uh, had a really good experience with. Uh, and she said, you know, have you ever thought about doing real estate? Because she knew I was kind of in the, the after my second one, I was doing the, the rehab process. Uh, which was pretty strenuous and not much fun, but was getting through that. And then uh, at that time, talking with my surgeon and everybody uh, saying, you know, baseball is probably not an option from here on out. And it's kind of like, whoa, you know, I'm what do do you mean? Baseball is not an option. I'm only like 29 years old. 
I'm supposed to be able to play till I'm 35, 36. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, had, uh, you, had you ever I had a good experience with her? Yeah, I had a good experience with her and then jumped right into the real estate gig and, and I've really enjoyed it, have massive success. Moving back to the Detroit area uh, has been great and then continuing my profession. It's it's been a good journey. Oh, that's great to hear. Had you had you ever given, you know, a moment's thought to what you might do when baseball was over during your career or when you're in college or anything? Yeah, yeah, of course. So when the, my career path was different. Everybody's got their own story, right? Uh, I was a small town kid from Kansas. I was originally going to join the military. Uh, my mom talked me out of that <laughs> and said, hey, go take this junior college scholarship and uh, just do it for two years, you know, and, and see where it takes you. I had, a, I had an offer from Wichita State also, but I was extremely raw. I had uh, some ability. I could run a little bit. You know, I had a little bit of physical strength, things like that, decent hand-eye coordination, but was never like the guy, the, the prospect prospect, especially being from a town of 1,100 people, right? Yeah. Is that Hutch- uh, Hutchinson? So then it just kind of morphed. Well, Haven, Kansas is where I'm from. Oh, it's Haven. Out, right outside of Hutchinson. Yeah, a little bitty, little bitty blurb on a map. Uh, great place to grow up and live, uh, country, country. We lived, I grew up on a dirt road about eight miles from a town of 1,200 or 1,100. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so exposure was not something that was common, right? Now, I played baseball, you know, all growing up, loved the game, but I also like to do a lot of other things. You know, I played football, basketball, baseball. I like to fish and hunt. I liked, I was an active guy. Uh, and then as the baseball process started, what, one thing that I really would take out of my success of going through junior college to division one, division one to pro ball, low A, high A, double A, triple A, big leagues, like, and then two tours in the Dominican, every level that I was at, I had to prove myself, you know, and I kind of attached to that challenge is the way I looked at it. I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a guy who's motivated by challenge. And it's really, it's really helped me succeed in a lot of different facets of life. Do you think, um, I mean, do you think it's pretty different for guys who are drafted, you know, and, you know, first round, you know, guys, guys who come in with huge expectations? Um, do you think it was better for you that you were kind of overlooked in that way? Well, you know, it helped build character, but it's something that I had already, already kind of had instilled in me uh, due to my upbringing. I was extremely lucky to have a great set of parents and some great mentors that have, they kind of stayed out of my way per se. You know, they would advise me and, and help me with skills and stuff. But at the end of the day, they wanted me to enjoy what I was doing. Their, their biggest concern was, hey, did he go out there and play hard today? Something I could control. It was never a lot of pressure put on me where you see kids now and, and guys high draft picks and it is a lot of pressure. It can, I would imagine it can be overwhelming. You know, like I said, everybody's journey is different. I think if you can just attach to the process and especially for guys who are the higher round draft picks and things of that, I was drafted in the eighth round as a senior, didn't get drafted as a junior. But I think if you can, if you can realize that I need to prove it all the time, everywhere I go, then you'll be fine. But if you feel like I got drafted, I'm a high round draft pick, so I'm owed something, you're already behind the game. Yeah, for sure. And you see that with guys. Sometimes it takes them a little bit to realize, hey, I need to get out here and produce because everybody out here right now 
is working hard and they want to get after it. So I need to get on that same level. Yeah, I might have a little more talent, but we both know, we all know that talent isn't the only derivative. It's not the only factor that can get a guy to the big leagues. Well, absolutely. And you look at these guys too, that are the number, you know, first round draft picks and yeah, they're the best guys at their university, but you get to the big leagues and you're in, you're the little fish in the big pond, right? So (laughs) it's, it's suddenly there's these guys that are much, much, much better than you that you're facing. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, I, I was the best at where I was, but now I'm in the big show and everyone here is the best at what they do. And that's that's a big part and of the it's a worldwide uh, game. Yeah, yeah. You, all of a sudden, the pool is really deep. Um, I mean, it, that's a big mm-hmm. part of player development, right? Is is really trying to match, you know, the player to to the right level where he's he's challenged. He feels, you know, that little bit of stress, like I've got to keep up with what everyone's going around going on around me, but isn't you know isn't just kind of cranking home runs and 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 having an easy time of it. You got to kind of find that that balance point where guys are pushed without being broken, right? Yeah, and it's it's different for everybody. And and with that said, even I know guys who repeat levels who maybe you know in a different organization would have got promoted. You got to take that with the right attitude too. Baseball in itself, it doesn't matter what level you're playing at. It's a different kind of game. There's a reason that the minor league system's so deep, and there's a reason that you know like football. If you if you're big, fast, strong you're going to have a spot. There's just no way around it. You know, on the defensive side of the ball, baseball is such a skill set game and a mindset game that it takes a while to develop those. So whatever level that a, a guy's playing at, it's going to be challenging. Even so you can take a guy who's, who's successful in double a just because he goes back to high. A, it doesn't mean that it's easy to hit a round ball with a round bat. Now your experience should should promote you to succeed more your mindset the things that you have learned at that level before and that's where okay if a guy does have to take a step back or repeat a level i i've seen it too many times where they think that that's like a a knock against them they say hey i proved it what i would tell those guys over and over this is a game that you have to prove yourself day in day out for your entire career it's it doesn't matter what you're doing uh what you did yesterday or the day before until maybe you sign a big long-term contract and you get a little more freedom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but for most guys in a system, if it's, what have you done for me lately? And that's what it got a lot of guys kind of, you can get in that lull state of, no, I've done it. I've proved it. I'm a good double a hitter. And then you go up to triple a and the difference between double a and triple a that I saw was you go against playing against a bunch of, uh, uh, 20 to 25 year olds to playing against a bunch of grown men, you know, 35 year olds up there and they have families and it's just a different atmosphere. And that was kind of the big, like, wow, these guys are grown men playing this game. It's not, you're playing against the college guys that you played against coming up anymore. Yeah. And that's kind of when you start feeling that job part, right? Where it's, I mean, you've got to go out there and you've got to produce every day. It's the consistency. Cause even Justin Verlander, I assume, you know, goes out there after all he's accomplished and is ultra competitive and feels like he has to prove himself with every start. And that's the mentality you have to, you have to find a way to develop and not, not kind of try to find excuses to get away from, or, you know, to kind of shy off of, of that mentality. 
Yeah, and that's where – so I really do believe that Wilford Petro has this law. It's called the, the law of 80-20. You know, in the big leagues, it would break down to 20% of the guys in the big leagues are kind of just destined to be there, in my opinion. They're just that good. Yeah. Like, regardless of kind of their skill set, their size, just the way they naturally know the game and can play it, they're kind of going to make it, and barring some injury or something like that, right? So Justin Verlander is a good example. He matured a little later, but an arm like that is going to make it. Now, what he did with that arm was every day he competed with that arm and refined his mindset, which is going to put him into the Hall of Fame, right? Yeah. So he was probably going to make it to the big leagues with his stuff and, and his arm and his capabilities, and his, his, but his mindset is pushing him over that level to become uh, more of a baseball legend. Same way with Miguel Cabrera. And then there's guys like me and Donnie Kelly, who are the 80% that are filling in the gaps. So there's a lot, there's a lot for grabs, in my opinion, in the big leagues. And a lot of guys, some guys disagree with me on this, but I've seen it firsthand. You know, I've, I've passed guys who talent-wise, physicality-wise, were better than me. There's no way around it. In BP, they can hit the ball a mile, and they run the fastest 60 times. They do all this stuff on paper, and now you get into analytics, and they'd be like, oh, it's launch angle and exit velocity, yeah. and blah, 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 blah. But is he, can he play the game of baseball? That's what it comes down to. Do you think, and you you kind of mentioned this with the guys that you're passing that are like technically better, is there a kind of, and you're talking about mentality, is there a mental block there where guys are seeing players that are, they, maybe they consider not to be better than them or worse than them advancing faster? Is there like a resentment there that may be holding them back because they're too focused on other people um, or something along those lines? Like, is, is there any of that that maybe goes on when guys in the minors are seeing people advance ahead of them when they think that they should already be there? There's a ton of that. So people inevitably, all of us, we all think we're very, very important. <laughs> what what yes, I yeah. try to get through to people is make them understand you are not nearly as important as you think you are. <laughs> and you're expendable to a point, like in baseball and in life, even at times. If I was to walk out of my house right now and get hit by a school bus, tragic. Andy Dirks dies at 32, got hit by a school bus. My wife and my kids and my mom and my brother and sister, something like that, would be very sad. And they would, you know, everybody else, though, for the most part, even some of my friends, so sad, so tragic, they move on with life. So if you take that, that's a, that's a guy who's been pretty successful and done some things in life, dying, and it's not that big a deal. So if, if, a guy's out playing you, the scouts and everybody that sees that, you're not owed anything. If you think you're better than somebody else, you need to prove that. Just because you think it or somebody's told you that, or maybe in high you were the guy and you go to Devil Way and you think you can outplay this guy, you have to prove it. That's yeah. the bottom line. And, and that's what you see these guys get in that mold of, well, I'm better than so-and-so, so I should be there regardless. No, no. It's a proven, it's a game where you have to prove yourself. And do some guys get a little edge uh, because the organization's got more money in them? Of course, it's common sense. They see a higher ceiling for him than they see for you. So, of course, he's going to get maybe promoted ahead and, and 
try to push him a little bit to see if they can hit that higher ceiling with him. But at the end of the day, if he doesn't figure it out and learn how to do it, it doesn't matter if they gave you $20 million. If you're not going to help the big league club succeed, they're not going to put you there. In the end, I mean, you're that investment in you only gets you so much extra leeway and you'd be, you know, well advised not to try to waste any of it (laughs) if possible. Yeah. That's a fact. Yeah. There's not, there's not, uh, this game it's, you think about a career, a a good major league career, five, five to 10 years, right? That's a, that's not a very long time. Five years goes by fast. Yeah. You know, so in, in the minor leagues, if you get an extra two years because you're a first round pick, that's about what you're going to get. They're not, they can't, there's just no way there's an influx of players coming in all the time and you can't look behind you, but you have to know that those guys behind you who got drafted the year after you are, are coming. Like they want it. How bad do you want it? You got to push and fight and scrap and claw. And if you do that, there's a chance there's, if you, if you have some ability and you start playing the game that way, as opposed to, and looking ahead, I think is another issue guys in the minor leagues really they stress out because when they're going good, they're always looking at the guy above them in the kind of the same position. And if he's struggling automatically, they're like, I should be that guy. Uh, Hey, Hey homie, you've been doing it for a week, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like you're hot for a week, be hot for two months, be hot for a year, be hot for two years. You know, it's like, that's, it's, the instant gratification thing. And then what happens is he's resentful that the organization maybe isn't pushing him forward. But in reality, the guy above him has proven at the level he was at that he could already do that. Right. And he's hitting a little funk and then he gets out of his funk and this guy rides that high for a little bit and crashes and burns. And then he looks around and is waiting for somebody to console him. There's nobody there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, and I, and I think that's a microcosm. Yeah. And it's a microcosm of what, you know, I think most people, you know, see in their, in their work life. It's just that it's got to be so amplified when you've got a bunch of, you know, young guys in their late teens and twenties who are ultra competitive and, you know, putting in this work and this sweat and wanting it so bad. Um, you know, it's just, it's got to be just an incredibly charged environment to, uh, to kind of come up in. Yeah. And one thing I realized, and I didn't even, you don't realize it while you're in it and while you're doing it. So I ended my career, of, you know, the pinnacle, the big leagues, right? When I got back into what people always tell me is the real world, you know, <laughs> oh, you got to get in the workforce, the real world now, stuff like that. One thing I noticed was I was surrounded by guys doing things at extremely high levels with focus and different kind of determination. And I got into real estate, which of all games, I figured out a lot of people want to say they're, they're working hard and they're doing the things they need to do. In reality, only a, a very small percentage are. Yeah. And that was kind of an eye-opening thing for me because I thought I was going to get into this ultra-competitive business of real estate. Yeah, a lot My of it was eyewash. What I learned, learned quickly, and a lot of it's eyewash, and a lot of people choose their real estate agent just basically based off of uh, their family friend. Yeah. They, they got a cousin that does it or their brother does it or, and that was kind of like, you see what they're doing. All they're doing is kind of leaning on the people they know to get business. You know, it was kind of yeah. like, Oh, this gate, this thing is wide open. 
Well, and humans have a great, you know, a great desire to be comfortable, don't they? Like there's just that, there's that natural urge to seek comfort when things are stressful. <laughs> like sometimes yeah, that can be a family sure. friend. And or, it's understandable. Uh, sure. So let's well, talk a little bit. Can we talk a little bit? You can trust. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, just to kind of, I want to really tie in, um, you know, the get you, the get your game right podcast and, and the whole kind of effort um, and, and kind of mention that. And can you kind of, kind of talk about how, you know, these lessons start to start to relate to, you know, what you're talking about in the podcast. I've heard a couple episodes, um, you know, you've had some great player development and scouting guests on that I've already heard and, um, and kind of the mentality that you, mm-hmm. that you're, you know, articulating, you know, just shines throughout the whole podcast. So c- can you kind of talk about how that, that relates to what you've learned as you know, the podcast? Yeah. So we're, we're starting the, the podcast. It, what we're trying to, to do, what I've tried to do, and I've had this idea for a while, we're getting it into motion and getting it into play. I think it's very relevant for anybody who wants to su- succeed in baseball, softball, really any sport, and really in life. The, the biggest separating factor, when I look back at my career and what I was able to accomplish, and then what other guys were able to accomplish, uh, seeing them kind of do the same thing, was it was the mindset. It was the mindset of how they approached the game, how they approached themselves, how they approached their focus on a daily basis. It wasn't, it's not complicated. It's not like a magic pill that you can take. And it's not about launch angle and, and exit velocity. It's not about those things. It's about a guy being determined to use his mental capacity on top of his physical capacity to excel his game. So with Get Your Game Right, we're getting on podcast because I knew right away I was a good player. I know the player side of it very well, but the coaching side, the dad side, you know, <laughs> and it kind of started too. I was getting calls from dads now that my number is available, which is cool <laughs> to have people say, hey, Andy, I got a, a, a 14-year-old uh, that loves the game of baseball. You know, he's good or whatever. He likes it. What do I do with him? So that's a great question. He's like, I never played baseball. And if I did, it was limited, you know, to, I played in high school. That was 25 years ago. What do I do with this kid? Like what kind of advice does he need to be getting? And then you kind of look across the scale, the way baseball's going with all the travel teams and all these uh, showcase camps and, and it's perfect. A lot of it to me is a money, is a money grab. Oh, you're hitting, you're hitting parents right in their wallet. Hey, you want little Johnny to have a shot? You got to come to this camp and pay us 250 bucks. You need to go to this showcase for 300 bucks. You need to take him across country. He needs to, if he's from Michigan in the summers, he should go down to Texas and play on this Texas team. I'm like, this is the most absurd stuff I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) If, If you are good enough, if you're good enough and you put in the effort that it takes, and you are, you're searching for the answers, you're going to make it. I can't stress it enough to a kid. All I'm trying to do, I would never promise a kid to make to the big leagues. That's just stupid, right? <laughs> That's like saying, hey, I'll make you, Brandon, I'll make you a millionaire tomorrow if you do this. You see all those commercials and stuff. No. I want to take a kid that if he's passionate about baseball or a girl that's passionate about softball or whoever it is, whatever their skill ability is, their skill level, that you're born with, we don't choose it. We're born with it, right? Yeah. Whatever that ability is, I want to help you learn how to maximize it the right way. 
there are so many good coaches out there. There's so many good people out there and resources that are very capable of teaching kids the fundamentals of the game. They, everybody's taking the same swings. They can teach them how to throw the baseball, fill the ground ball. They can teach them you need to tag up on a pop fly. I don't think, however, there's as many people that are as capable of teaching the mindset, the mental aspects, the thought process, how to really break that down and make it understandable at a simple level that it's achievable on a daily basis. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause yeah, you know, kids can get, you know, decent coaching on YouTube if, you know, if all they're looking for is drills and that sort of thing, but learning how to, how to apply it consistently like that um, would seem to, yeah, seem to be the key that's, that's often left out. I think it's, it's actually a huge thing. So even at like a major league level, you look at guys who kind of get there finally and, and seem to like get in their own head. And it, it seems like this is as vital a part of somebody coming up to any level as, as having the, the pure skill. Yeah. And I love how you just said that. So we hear these things time and time again, like he's just in his own head. Hey, he needs to get out of his own head. Okay. That's great. I've heard that a million times too. I've had coaches tell me that, Hey, Dirks, you just need to get out of your own head. All right, cool. How do I do that? <laughs> stop, stop thinking. Andy. Uh, <laughs> stop thinking, right? You hear these things. So how does the guy actually do that? So I break it down and I, I call it, uh, it's part of my slump buster toolkit that I'm putting out. The first thing you got to do to realize to get out of your own head, be somebody different. I call it the mimic. So when you're a kid playing in the backyard, who are, are you, are you yourself or are you acting like your idols? <laughs> yeah. Right. You're acting, yeah. you're acting like these uber successful guys who are confident and get it done on a daily basis, and you think they're the best things in sliced bread. It's no different in the big leagues. Guys in the big leagues do this stuff. So when, when you're in your own head or you have that kid who's in their own head, just ask them, hey, who's your favorite player? Oh, Mike Trout. Cool. You know what I want you to be today? Mike Trout. Act like Mike Trout. What that does is it takes you out of your own brain and now you're using their confidence and their power to get you out of your own head and help start pushing you forward and excelling. I had some of my best times in the big leagues. I was uh, Manny Ramirez. I was nice. uh, Moises Alou. Like, I was these different guys in the big leagues. Oh, yeah. Worse. Like, uh, but for most people, they say, get out of your own head. Oh, that'd be great. I wish I could. Yeah, but wouldn't is, that be nice? So that's so that's a technique to kind of but you know can. get get past yeah. that block, like to give yourself like something else to think about. You've got to replace you know whatever thoughts are holding you back with the thoughts that you would imagine Mike Trout would have or Miguel Cabrera or someone like that. That's right. So most people when they approach a slump, when they're struggling, so they're approaching a slump, right? Uh, they're uh, one for the last fifteen, one for the last twenty-two. What happens is naturally you start searching. And when I say searching, you're looking for information from anybody. You could be at the Taco Bell drive through and be <laughs> like, Hey man, do you know how to hit a slider? <laughs> like, yeah. Try this. Oh, I'll try it for sure. You know? Yeah. So it, and it, the reality is most coaches, when you get into that phase, because they, they say you need to get out of your own head, but all they really know how to focus on is the mechanics. 
they start messing with swings. Mm, yeah. And that compounds the issue big time. So they'll take a one, uh, an 0 for 10 and turn it into that 1 for 25 by, you need to raise your hands, you need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to... I've seen my swing on film probably 5,000 times. Yeah. The one thing I realized was my swing kind of was what it was. As much as I try to manipulate it, guys would say, hey, you need to oh, look at this Barry Bonds film. Try to swing like that. Cool. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? If yes. me and Barry Bonds had the, if I had the exact same flexibility, stature, strength, all the aspects that it takes when you swing a bat, it's different for every human. Oh, man, that'd be great if I had that, right? But I, the way I swing a bat is just different. And once I kind of learned that and fell back to my swing is kind of what it is, you know, I can make a few minor tweaks here and there. But overall, I would think that I was changing something major and I'd go watch it on film, it looks exactly the same. Fascinating, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of times when you're struggling, you're, people naturally start to flail around, right? Like, you know, it's very hard for people to react to stress with, with patience and, and sort of a steadiness. Um, our natural inclination is always mm -hmm. like, you should be doing something. You should be changing everything, you know, if this isn't yep. going right. And you can just kind of work yourself, you know, mm -hmm. it's paralysis by analysis has kind of always been the golf term for that. <laughs> Um, but yeah it, yeah, it does seem like that could very easily take over any, uh, any baseball player, especially when, when you, you see what pitchers are bringing nowadays, um, you know, the focus it takes to hit at the major league level. You know, I think sometimes people think like, oh, this guy wasn't a very good major league player. And it's also, you know, whoever they're thinking about. And it's, you know, it's, it's important to remember just how few people make it to the major leagues out of the enormous pool of kids that grow up playing baseball. I mean, it's just such a, such a narrow funnel at the end. Um, you know, it's, it's the, and the difference it seems like between, you know, a great player and a good player is probably to some degrees, maybe narrower than we think it is. Um, so yeah, I really like that you're, you know, kind of taking some of these sort of platitudes, like get out of your own head and trying to actually articulate what, what you should do, like what, what proactive action you should take as opposed to stop doing this or stop doing that. Yeah. And most of the proactive, uh, Stuff that we try to do is mechanical we go in the cage and bang out more we get more balls we do you know as a pitcher if your your command's off you're in the bullpen and you're just all you're thinking about is command and you become so obsessed with your issue as opposed to let's peel the layers back a little bit they're trying to fix their command by gripping the ball differently and doing different things right as opposed to let's peel this back let's make something achievable for a kid He's missing high and arm side. 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 Okay. An adjustment would be hold on to the baseball longer, dummy. <laughs> like, it's not your grip. It's not how you're – like, seriously, let's get it simple. And I got uh, Brent Kimnitz. Uh, he's actually the winningest pitching coach in Division One history. Is big on the mental side of baseball. And he's, he's part of Get Your Game Right, too. He's got some great stuff, great stuff that, that digs into this, and, and I can't wait for people to see it. Oh, that's awesome. Are you still in touch with um, with people at Wichita State at all? Have you, do you ever go back there? Or? Uh, well, they changed coaches. So Gene Stevenson was there when I was there. They changed uh, to Todd Butler, you know, and I don't go back there anymore. I, I used to work out there in the offseason some, uh, you know, because I was still living in the Wichita area. But I haven't been back in quite a while, but I still have a really good relationship with Brent. Uh, and uh, that's that's kind of the extent of it, really. Yeah. 
Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah, I just was you know Wichita State still seems to produce some pretty good players. So you know, I noticed Alex ba- Alec Baum this year was uh, was a really high draft pick out of there and and looked like a monster. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. uh, it's been a consistently good baseball school for a long time. It seems like. Yeah, they they built that program from nothing and uh, and turn it into. They won national championship in '89. We went to a few super regionals when I was there. And then always have guys getting drafted. You know, my year was like me, Connor Gillespie, uh, who's been in the big leagues uh, for a decent amount of time now. And then we had a couple uh, draft pick pitchers who who didn't make to the big leagues. But I mean, just to get drafted is is incredible. And then going back to that, like you said, what what separates a a good player from a great player is a narrow margin. And I think that margin is gets overlooked as the mentality aspect, which for a scout, any scout knows baseball is the hardest game to scout first of all the hardest part about it is the mindset the mentality is so strong it's such a big part of success that you can't it's hard to teach it's hard to articulate and that's what we're trying to break that barrier down i think it's the most overlooked part of the game we went from steroid era to no steroids we're always trying to find an advantage. And right now they're trying to find it with technology. Yeah. I'm here to tell you these guys with the technology are <laughs> way freaking smarter than us baseball players. <laughs> like these I was guys worried you were going like, to say something bad about analytics and Brandon's heart was going to break. No, <laughs> I don't, I think that I don't know. I'm not, I, I'm not Mr. Analytics over here. <laughs> I love technology. I think it's a cool aspect that they're bringing in. I think there is a place for it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the end all be all. Yeah, I mean, I think That's it's interesting. In, in, I don't think in that looking analytics the game, is the end-all, be-all. Yeah, especially when you're learning the game. When you're, you know, it's a whole different thing when you're just a fan looking from the outside, trying to understand what's going on. Sometimes those things can help, but most of that stuff, I, I can't really imagine being particularly useful to a, a young player until you know they're making, you know, minute little adjustments. You know, like guys using high-speed cameras to check their slider grip, this kind of thing. Like that, you know, that stuff's not going to change anything for you when you're 18, 19 years old. No. And even, even guys in the big leagues. Uh, so take this example. I always see when I'm watching TV, they, you know, they hit the home run and they do the whole breakdown X amount of miles an hour off the bat, X, Y, Z. What a beautiful swing. He caught it right. I never seen him do it when the guy gets uh, hits one off the top of his hand and the bat shatters into 500 pieces and the ball goes about five feet out in front of home plate. Oh, they've done them and they spike them right into the ground and it's like a 35 mile an hour exit velocity. Those are my favorite stat cast moments. (laughs) Like, oh yeah, that was a hit. (laughs) Yeah. Because it is funny, like the exit velocity launch angle stuff. It's like, I saw the ball. I saw, I saw what happened. You know, it doesn't change anything to know that it was 105 miles per hour rather than 103. So yeah. But I think it's, and one of the cool things about baseball is it's the fans, right? The people and people who like to analyze the game. There's a hunger uh, to analyze baseball because it is such an intricate game. It's like, it's like a symphony, you know, it's like an orchestra of things happening all at once. And when it's in unison, it's the most beautiful sound you've ever heard. But when one of those, when the, when the guy with the cymbals back there is just going, <laughs> like all of a sudden everything, the wheels fall off, you know, and it's just one person, one thing, one little element. So with the guy, his timing's a little off. 
he's got the most beautiful swing ever, but can never be on time with the baseball, or has never figured out a way to stay on time with the baseball, you're never going to see that result. You know? So oh, it's, it is, baseball is such baseball, an, an interesting job. game. Yeah, and there's, you know, and there's all these pauses, you know, like each pitch is its own sort of like, you know, individual game. But then the whole thing is kind of, like you said, kind of taking place in this, this tapestry of each of these little, these little individual events, you know, like the, the fielders are interacting with the ball and the base runners are, are running. Yeah, there's all these kind of disparate things kind of happening all around the ball, but the pitcher starts it each time and there's, you know, 280, 300 pitches per game. So you have each of these little moments, these little start points all throughout it. It is the best. It's just the best game, Andy. Yeah, well, there's no doubt. I mean, you can you get to play it all this, every day. You can always watch baseball. And then you put the stats on top of it, which, you know, once they started putting my batting average up on the big screens, you know, in the minor leagues, that mm-hmm. can be scary. You know, that's, that's an obstacle a guy's got to overcome because you're on the road and, you know, early in the season, if you start a little slow, you're hitting – a buck 80, 88, you know, and <laughs> yeah. you're hitting as a three hole. They're like, why are you in the three hole? <laughs> you know, like, oh boy. Yeah. Give me a month. Look right? out there for the world to see how bad you've been lately. You know? <laughs> yep. Easier at the oh, end of the season yeah. when it's kind of balanced out a little more. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, or, you know, but if, if you're hitting 405, then it's like, oh, I'm the man, you know, the, just, uh, <laughs> yep. it's just the whole, the, the whole uh, aspect of baseball and the cool part about it is over time, if you're consistent and you, you use that mindset, use your abilities, always re- refine your, your skill set. So a, a big thing that I always try to uh, train kids, and I don't want to get off on these training topics too much. We can talk about some other fun stuff too. So you have a skill set, right? You're trying to use that skill set to complete a task, which is going to give you a result. So, you know, your skill set, if you, you're a good contact hitter but don't have a lot of power, your task should probably be to try to hit a line drive somewhere. And then that result is going to be the, the, how well your skill set goes into the task. What the missing link there between skill set and task is the focus. What are you thinking yeah. about? To take that skill set and, 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 and do that task to get the proper result, you know, and I, I, I fell into it a lot too at times because we were just kind of coming off the eras of outfielders hitting 50 home runs, you know, and yeah. th- you start thinking, I need to be a guy that can hit home runs to be able to have a shot at the big leagues. When in reality, no, guys now, you know, 20, 20 home runs in a year is, is outstanding. So, me breaking out of that mold of trying to do too much. That was always something that, that I struggled with because I was a gap to gap hitter. I didn't have massive power. I could get you, you know, if you messed up and I got, got it right. But if I got into that mindset, I'd start pulling my front shoulder out and start causing some issues. It wasn't, yeah, my mechanics were off, but it was caused by what I was thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that, this is a particular topic that's been on my mind a lot lately, just kind of watching the Tigers farm system. Do you think guys can, can be taught plate discipline or is it something that like you can kind of help a guy, but, but more or less you just kind of have to go out there and figure it out for yourself as time, time goes. Cause I, I just don't see a lot of guys who, who don't walk in the minor leagues and then eventually kind of figure it out late. Like it does happen, but, but you know, that, that kind of thing seems like almost an innate 
an innate gift that past a certain point it's really hard to develop. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great topic. I was lucky to have a guy by the name of Toby Hera. You remember Toby? Toby Hera was, uh, yeah, he's a great hitting coach. He was the minor league roving hitting coach when I was kind of going through. One of my best mentors as far as hitting goes when I was in in pro ball because he saw me a lot. He knew me very well, right? His biggest thing uh, when it came to plate discipline was you're going to kind of learn it as you go. You have to stay aggressive because what happens is you start telling a young kid you need this plate discipline. What they're the problem with these young kids is you, that creeps into their head, and then they'll swing at everything. It's like you, your brain can only process a certain amount of information at a time. When you're in the game, you need to be focused so intently on what the pitcher's trying to do and have some kind of uh, plan that you can execute. And for most guys, especially young guys hit the ball back up the middle, right? Try to hit a line drive back up the middle kind of alleviates a lot of problems. It also, if you have a task, say, okay, I'm swinging at the high pitch too much, whatever it is. That was kind of a struggle I had. What I would do then is say, okay, I need to try to hit a a one hop ground ball off that pitcher's foot. What that would do is kind of naturally lower my sights and get me adjusted into that zone where I could accomplish that task because I had to have the right pitch to be able to accomplish that task. Now, if you're just up there swinging, which a lot of guys with plate discipline problems have, and I go, I was, I'd go through stages like that. And I wish I had developed all this knowledge and stuff and written it down because it always takes me like (laughs) too long to remember it, (laughs) but it's, it's your, it's your focus on what kind of task you're trying to produce. So say for instance, Runner at second, nobody out. We got to get that guy to third base, however we can do it, right? We have a task. Now, am I going to be able to take that, that fastball that's two inches outside and wrap around it and try to pull it to the second baseman? It's going to be difficult. But if I, if I have my sight set on, okay, I need to hit the ball hard on the ground to the second baseman, naturally my focus is going to be on pitch that I can do that job with. Does that make sense? Yeah. So leading yourself by the, by the goal rather than trying to just focus on, I'm looking, I'm sitting this pitch or I'm sitting this, this zone. Yeah. Yeah. The, the setting, setting on a pitch for me never worked. Some guys, it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a lot of maturity. And really, I don't think guys can really start setting on pitches until you see the same pitcher and over and over, or a guy's just throwing you a lot of curveballs. This is the way I did it. And this is a very effective way. A lot of guys in the big leagues do it this way. You're not so much setting on a particular pitch. You're setting more on a speed, and this is how you do it. So if, if a guy's throwing me slow curveballs, say a left-handed pitcher's throwing me the slow curveball that I'm just out in front of, I can't get on it, right? What I do then is I'm trying to hit the ball over the third baseman's head. Oh, yeah. What it naturally does is make makes me stay back longer. Yeah, you let right? the ball travel. Because yeah. most guys that do that, they're they're not going to kill you with the fastball. You know, most of those guys they throw, say they're throwing eighty six, whatever, eighty eight. Uh, depending on the guy, eighty eight can jump on you. But if they're throwing me that slow hook or that slider away, and I'm just having trouble with it. That's where I got to think. Okay, I'm going to hit a screaming line drive over the third baseman's head. Problem solved. Staying back longer. 
seeing the ball longer keeps me off of bad pitches that are down in the zone on that curveball. Because that's all, when people struggle with curveballs, they're not seeing the ball long enough. Yeah. They're swinging for the fastball. Yeah. They don't know how to slow their brain down. Oh, that's huh. pretty interesting. So rather than like trying to, okay, I'm struggling with the, the slow curveball and and focusing on, you know, kind of what you're trying not to have happen, you know, like, okay, I've got to try to watch for the pop out of the guy's hand because, you know, I'll know it's a curveball if it starts up, all that kind of stuff. You can't really do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's too, it's the game happens too fast. So I think an average, fast, this a 90 mile an hour fastball takes about three tenths of a second to get out of the pitcher's yeah. hand to home plate. So if I didn't, I don't know if my vision was bad or what. I never really saw spin. You know, Miggy said he, Miggy could see it. And that's a gift he has, right? Like he'd be like, oh, don't you see like out of his hand? I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like he can like, slow no. down time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, one of those abilities that he has. I wasn't fortunate enough to have that. I think most guys, if they're really honest with themselves, once in a while, I'd see a ball out of the hand if the guy was going to hang, if it just, he messed the pitch up. But when the arm speeds get higher and guys are throwing cutters, and there's just no way you can see the spin on an 88-mile-an-hour slider. It's for me. It's all happening. Right? Yeah, it's all happening. So that's, where you, that's where your adjustment has to be. And, and so going back to the curveball, before I learned how to make that adjustment, I would be, I would set on a curveball, and then it would be there, and I would still be out in front of the stupid thing. <laughs> so I had to refine what I'm doing here, right? And that's called yeah. making an adjustment. Good players, the best players, and you're talking about the difference between the good and the great, can make an adjustment from pitch to pitch. Hitters, same with pitcher. So a pitcher throws a, a two seam fastball down and away doesn't have a lot of action on it, kind of leaves it over the plate, guy hits double in the gap. But he then he knows his adjustment right then. Oh, we've got to stay a little more closed on the front side. Wham, get my action back. Maybe I try to overthrow that pitch, which happens in this game yeah. now nonstop. It drives yeah. me nuts. If the, guy throws, if the guy throws 88 to 90, he's getting ground balls, he's working the zone, he's pounding it. As soon as he's throwing 92, and Porcello dealt with this a lot. As soon as he's throwing 92 to 94, his stuff flattens out. Oh yeah. With him. oh, yeah. That's interesting. He was always better when he was like 89, 91 with the sink. Yeah. And it's that's part of knowing your skill set, being really honest with yourself. What kind of player are you? You know, are you going to go out there to light up the radar guns? And I had a good interview with uh, Larry Swanson. I don't know if you've listened to it yet or not. And we talked about kind of the, the creativity part of the game has wavered for, especially the pitchers, you know, now it's how hard can I throw? How, how hard can I throw the slider? And I'm only going to go five innings. So before guys used to go uh, nine innings, the starter would go all nine or eight, and then they'd bring a guy in in the bullpen. You get through the lineup that third time, then the fourth time and your arms dragging, you got to find ways to be creative to get these guys out. Cause it's not just going to be stuff. So as opposed to coming out and you're, you know, you're 94 to 96 all game. Cool. Okay. That was great. But you went f- uh, four and two thirds and, and now the bullpen's got to wear it. Luckily in baseball, there is enough guys, but the starter is supposed to be 
one of the pitchers on the team who's got enough stuff and can command his pitches enough to continually get guys out. Now, when you, they start talking on, on the TV and stuff, oh, we got to get him out before the third time through the lineup. I'm like, that, that's not a starting pitcher. Like, you, you try to pull Verlander <laughs> because, oh, no. oh, oh, third time through. It's like, no, I'm going to still get guys out. You know, I, I, know what I, I know that my pitch is what I'm doing here, and Ver would do it all the time. He would start the game out sometimes at 88 to 90, you know, and then when he needs that, that ace, he's got it. Yeah. But why is he going to wear himself out early in the game knowing that I'm going to go deep into this game? Yeah, you know, it's like um, that's a lot. That's a lot of start in baseball. I know I've heard that from even Tiger, like Tiger Woods, to take it to another sport. You know, where you, you know, you go eighty-five percent until you, so that you always have that extra when you when you're in a jam. You know, in the late innings when Verlander needed to throw ninety-nine, hundred to close out his own game. Um, but it just seems like it's it, you know it's just a rare breed that can do that kind of thing now. And I don't know if it's because you know I don't really understand. And no one seems to have figured this out, why pitchers can't go as deep anymore and why why so many pitchers are getting injured. And I don't know if it's because they're just coming up, throwing as hard as possible, you know, when they're too young to be doing it and, you know, just trying to get the, you know, the the high draft pick and the big bonus. I don't know if those, if those things are, are the cause, but it definitely feels like that kind of starting pitching uh, outing is becoming, you know, something of a rare. Yeah. And I- it's the, it's the radar gun, first of all. So if you go to a showcase, even guys throwing across the diamond, these guys are throwing balls into the bleachers, you know, from third base. Like, come on. That's ridiculous. Guys, guys, the radar guns are back there. They're throwing it to the backstop, <laughs> trying to hit 95, whatever, right? Trying to yeah. hit that magic number to show them they're projectable. To me, it's a complete waste of time, first of all for anybody involved in that whole system, that whole mindset of, okay, if he hits 95, I might put him on my prospect list. That is, it's that it's terrible for the de- development of a player because now all they're worried about is throwing hard. They're not learning how to pitch. You know what I mean? I would rather focus that time and effort on let's learn how to pitch as you're get naturally going to gain your velocity, you know, as you're naturally going to develop into your body. So fastball changeup until you're 16. Then let's maybe work on a little bender. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you, you can do- learn how to get if, get guys out just fastball changeup, work a two seam, work a four seam, work a four seam changeup, and you can learn how to pitch on those pitches when you're young. You'll develop a little curveball in the slider, and then you're set. Yeah. Then you right? can Bartolo Colon your way to age 44. <laughs> Bartolo, Bartolo's still yeah. doing it, They're doing that very thing and, and still reasonably effective. Yep. And I think part of his, his longevity, too, is the way he approaches the game, his mindset. That is a guy who never gets flustered, ever. He's always got a smile on his face. He's yeah. like Tory Hunter, you know. Like, those guys just naturally, they don't let the game get to them. They just keep competing and going out there and being a good teammate, having fun, whatever struggles they go through don't last very long, and they always find ways to be productive. It's the way they approach the game. Just not afraid to As fail. As opposed to, I'm going to approach... Yeah, they're not. And when they do fail, they can just shrug it off. They smile it off. They say, well, you got me that time. I'm going to get you this time. You know? 
Not easy to do, though. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> not sure. Easy. Not in There's front a lot of emotion involved with baseball, <laughs> and you got forty thousand people screaming at you when you don't. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, let's. Um, I, I'm, I'm loving all this stuff. I could talk. I could just, you know, like, yeah, hold you prisoner and, and make you tell me more about baseball <laughs> and the I, intricacies for a long time. But let's go. Let's just... t- let's talk a little bit more about about your career uh, with the Tigers. Ashley, you got any? I know you got a couple questions you wanted to I, wanted to go with. I do. And Andy, you just brought up Tory Hunter, so that kind of is a good segue for me. Um, I kind of want to know about like clubhouse leadership and those guys that kind of rise up and become clubhouse leaders and like what what does that mean for you guys in a club like what is that guy doing there that helps guide the team like I've been saying that I think Nick Castellanos on the team right now has is emerging as a clubhouse leader but I'm obviously not in the clubhouse so I'm just curious as to like what that kind of guy is doing for you guys behind the scenes yeah that's a great question Leadership, there's thousands of books written on it. Everybody wants a leader, right? I do think that there are people who are more predisposed just based on their personality to become a leader. Usually it's more of your outgoing types. uh, And there are also people who are consistent and not just consistent on a baseball field, consistent in their life, consistent with what they do. When you want to become a leader or you want to develop as a leader, the first thing you got to realize is I need to first prove it. You have to prove it. Nobody's ever going to follow you if you've never proven anything. So as a baseball player, your leaders are usually the guys who have been there a little bit longer, who have proved more in the game than you have, right? Yeah. And then also they approach every single day. They're there. They're first in the clubhouse. They're taking their, their swings in the cage. They're helping guys out. They're constantly there and in a supportive role and always doing the right stuff. And, and those are the guys who it takes time for a leader to kind of develop and emerge. Like you just said, like Nick, Nick Castellanos, he's been in the big leagues for a decent little clip now. And he's a guy that has a smile on his face, always yep. there to help a teammate out. And even when he was younger, right, he's always going to be in the clubhouse early. He's always going to be in the batting cage working. He's always going to be the guy that's kind of like, you know, pat you on the butt. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's go have some fun today. Let's do it, you know. And his personality is attractive. And I think oh, that guys yeah. like that, you know, Tory Hunters, uh, Victor Martinez, guys like that, who every day have a focus, have a determination, it kind of gives somebody, everybody else, somebody to rally around. Like, man, he's doing it. I need to get after it and do it too. Yeah, but oh, you kind of got to be able to live it before you can, yeah, model it. To you have to live to... it. You have to prove it. You cannot, you, you have to have some street cred before you're the leader. You can't be the guy coming in from AAA uh, who's having a hot month and, and just be the leader right away, right? Yeah. You have to con- prove it over time. And, uh, and I think that's the proper way it should be done because those are the guys with the actual experience. They've been through the highs, the lows, the good teams, the bad teams. They've seen all the different angles of the game compared to if you're two years in the big leagues, uh, you haven't seen that much, really. You know, you haven't been on the good teams, the bad teams. You haven't seen success and failure at the level that some of these guys have in the big leagues. You know, what is a slump uh, for them? They've been through a worse slump than, than, than you have, I promise. Right? Yeah. How they get through it, how they keep their, their head right, 
and and keep themselves in the big leagues and then just keep working at that goal. No, that's awesome. Um, so I just have a quick follow-up because I happen to have the Tigers game on mute going right now. Um, Tigers are uh-huh. playing the Angels, and I'm just curious about West Coast road trips and how they were for you guys. I know for any fans in Michigan, they're like the bane of the existence, like 10 p.m. start times. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious if those like if there was like a mental like like wall that you guys hit doing those trips, or if it was just hey, we have to take a flight couple couple long flights and it's just normal baseball yeah it never affected me i know that it's a big topic and you know you see teams go out west sometimes they struggle whatever maybe it is a factor for me i never even thought about it because by the time you get on the airplane from the other game you get on the flight uh you play a little cards you take a nap you wake up uh, and it's not like you're flying coach on Spirit Airlines. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you're flying in the Taj Mahal of jets uh, provided by the Illich family. Amazing. Uh, big seats, pretty comfortable. You get in, you get in, you get the bus, everything's catered for you. You're not carrying your own luggage. Like they, yeah, they're doing everything they can can do to help you succeed. Uh, when you go play those other teams on the West Coast, I think probably the biggest factor is maybe you don't play them as much. You don't see those pitchers as much. Uh, so it can be a little bit of a challenge there. But at the end of the day, you're, you're going to the ballpark. You kind of have a routine when you get to the field. Guys who stick to the routine never have issues. You know, if if don't maybe if you, you know, the, usually you'll, you'll scratch BP if you get in super late. Yeah. Which kind of can throw a routine off a little bit. I think probably for the, the the starting pitcher would probably be the worst on the the first day getting in, but then or the first day getting back because not only did they set through that whole game, they're starting that next day. Pitchers or starting pitchers are very routine oriented, so you get to the clubhouse and nobody's there yet. It's got to be weird, right? Yeah, it's got to be kind of a different and and most of the those guys find ways to get over that and get around it. But I would never say that that should ever be an excuse. The way we travel, the food we have, like everybody's there to help you when you're in the big leagues. That should never be an excuse for anybody to have any struggle at all. Yeah. I remember Max Scherzer used to like run up and down the hills in the outfield in, in Anaheim. And it was just hilarious ahead of the games, mm-hmm. just doing his up yeah. and down the hills. And I'm like, all right, man, that's, that's crazy. crazy but <laughs> trying to get some energy out there. Well, that's why he's good. Oh yeah, well yeah, he is That's a little bit crazy, and it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, but Max Scherzer does something crazy to play this game. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. Um, okay, let me just take you back real quick here, and we're gonna just talk about uh, May sixteenth, two thousand eleven. You made your debut against Kyle Drabeck. I think it was the Toronto Blue Jays, and that was the day you got your yep. first. That was the day you got your first hit, and I just wonder. Is that a big deal to you? Like, do you, I mean, can you remember that distinctly? Do you have the ball or is, was it just kind of a moment in time that you just kind of kept going from? Uh, you know, when you bring it up, I remember it. So me and Drebeck had history in the minor leagues too. Oh, okay. So this guy, when I, when my first year in double A, Drebeck had, had a really good arm in, and he kind of jumped out of his hand at 95. He threw up in the zone, which uh, at the time when I was in double A, most guys weren't doing that. It was my first three strikeout game in my professional career Oh no! against Straybeck. He struck me out three times. Uh, the funny thing is I get my first hit 
it was a little uh, base hit through the six hole, which was between, you know, third base and shortstop. I get my first hit. I'm juiced up. I'm excited. I didn't know Drebeck had an amazing pickoff move. I got picked off first base. <laughs> so I remember it very vividly. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> painful. Know? Yeah. It, it, and and uh, I, I have the ball somewhere, I would imagine. Uh, my son, uh, he's three now. Uh, one day he'll probably dig it up when I have to prove to him that I, dad actually played in the major league and was a baseball <laughs> player. <laughs> yeah, right, dad. You don't know anything, you know. But uh, Before that yeah, ball gets thrown it. to the neighbor dog and stuff and the dog runs away. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I swear yeah. I went to the World Series, kid. Believe me. Yeah, the good thing is we got enough uh, uh, proof via the internet that you can't deny it. <laughs> no. no, I mean, but, the, Tiger, uh, the Tigers you know, never I, missed the postseason with you on the team. <laughs> it looks like a pretty good record, man. I was, I'm the link, man. Yeah. Every most of the places I ever played, we won, which was pretty fortunate. So I mean, like, but, can uh, we bring you back uh, as a coach or something? That would be great. <laughs> you know, I've, I've actually had people reach out to me. I'm at a stage in my life. I'm just not going to do the travel. Yeah. It's I got young kids at the house, a three year old, a one and a half year old, and my wife's pregnant. Oh, and congratulations! I've had a stage in my life. Congratulations, yeah, man. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, and real estate pays, you know, pretty well when you're doing well with it as you are. <laughs> so yeah, you're fine. Yeah. 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 That's not a, that's not an issue for me. What I will say, going back to my big league debut, uh, I was a small town kid from Kansas and you play through the minor leagues and there's, uh, the mud hens, you know, beautiful stadium, not that big. Right. Right. Yeah. I'd only been in, I'd been in, uh, St. Louis's, uh, Bush stadium, the old one, Mark McGuire, you know, yeah. when I was like 12 and then I think. I went to a game at Kauffman Stadium. So I'd been in two big league stadiums my entire life uh, as a fan Yeah. before I ever stepped foot on a big league stadium starting in left field. Oh, my God. So it was – but it was like at first, you know, you get juiced up. And even even as my career went on a little bit, when, when, when the announcer, you know, uh, put us out on the field and you run out on the field – you get like the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. There's just no way to describe <laughs> it. Just running out on that field is an amazing feeling. And it's, it's something that, uh, you know, not many people get to do. And I was very grateful to be able to do it and, and to enjoy it the way I did, even for, you know, it's short lived, but that's life. You got to move on. I was, uh, fortunate from what I did uh, when we won the, uh, going back to big stadiums, right. So my mom and dad were uh, in 2012 when we beat the Yankees in the ALCS. They came down on the field, and they had watched a few games. You know, they'd watched the games up in the stands. They come down on the field, and they're doing the trophy ceremony and stuff. And my parents are, you know, small-town people from Kansas. They look up, and and my dad is very, very – he was a very quiet man, soft-spoken. He looked up, and he said, Wow. How do you do this? <laughs> this thing is huge, you know. But you, you get so into the game. For me, I would get so into the game that my surroundings wouldn't wouldn't even come into play. You know, the the big leagues for me, the hardest part was the stadiums when they're taller. It's harder to track the ball until it gets up out of the stadium. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. Disappearing like into the fans. Yeah. It wasn't about you know. Uh, now, when we played in Oakland, uh, that place in the playoffs <laughs> was a madhouse. Oh, I bet. It was so loud. 
it's it's a bunch of football fans. You know, Ra- it's a bunch of Oakland Raiders fans going yeah. to a baseball game. Yeah, they got Vuvuzelas and, they got and drums. <laughs> so much mm. drumming. They have a they have a kazoo guy now. Yeah, like, it's he, just like, so much by... different because. Yeah. The, so, like the city of Detroit, the people there know baseball. They go to watch the baseball game, right? So, it's it's not overwhelmingly loud until something happens. Like it's like they know when to cheer and when not to. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Or when to when to get when to get after it. Like, oh, okay, you know, it's a the eighth inning. We're down by a run. We got a runner in second. Let's get loud now, right? Yeah. Everybody uh, stand up. We're yep. Oakland in the playoffs. Everybody just screamed the entire game. <laughs> it was like nothing I've ever seen, other than maybe the Dominican. But on a grander scale, literally, the I felt like this. It was shaking a little bit. It was it was it was intense. Oh, After yeah. those games, we're all like, whew, and I'm like, thank God we got good pitching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It's like an echoey concrete, you know, monolith out there, too. It really does seem like it's, like, echoey compared to some other stadiums as well. So, oh, those must have been some, yeah. crazy, and, some crazy games to watch, you know, Scherzer and Verlander, you know, kind of deal the way they did in that series. I mean, it was bananas. Oh, yeah. Our, when I was there, well, the reason we were good our starting pitching staff, you think three Cy Young winners, Doug Fister, and then Anibal Sanchez. <laughs> like yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, Doesn't and get we much had better. we had so Porcello in the bullpen. Yeah. Right? Who went he was a Cy Young winner. Yeah. And he never got to <laughs> so pitch. Like, he hardly pitched in that series. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh those guys, you know, hats off to them and what they were able to do. I do think, and in all honesty, that the way that their fans were, it was a detriment to their team as much as it was ours. Oh, really? Kind of psyched them out a little? Was, the whole game, the whole game is just loud and screaming and, you know, so their guys are feeling it just as much as we are. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Even though it's their home stadium, right? Yeah. There, there's a point where there's so much noise, it's hard to channel in the focus. You know what I mean? And that's the whole point of getting loud for your team at the right times. I think because they weren't savvy enough to understand that this isn't a football game and we're, we all just want to go have our drinks and get loud and rowdy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, I think it was a detriment to their team. Yeah. Dude. Cause you've, you've got Josh Reddick up at the plate, you know, he's, he's in a pressure situation trying to get a key hit and the stadium is just absolutely going bananas around him. You know, it's like that might be the time to cool exactly. it down just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fact. And that's kind of uh, you know, learning like part of the home field advantage is your crowd. You know, a little bit of your comfort zone because you play there more, but also your crowd. Like, when when are they getting rowdy and when are they not? And that's a big, big thing. Well, and it could be. Is it so tough? That's what I thought. Is it tough in the postseason, too? Because when you're at home, you've got, you know, like friends and family all, you know, kind of want tickets and people are coming and you're you're kind of hosting people at your house. Like, those kind of things can kind of come up. Whereas when you're on the road, you know, your mind is clear. You guys are all in the hotel together as a unit. Is it actually easier, do you think, to be on the road in a certain sense? No. Uh, so, like with anything, at the big league level, uh, and I was only with Detroit, but I don't know most organizations try to do it similar. They cater to what you need. They want you to focus on the game. So, with the tickets, what they would do is before, once we got into the playoffs, you would buy a ticket for all the series. So, like, if my mom and dad want to go, we just buy them all for the whole series, and then what you don't use, you know, you don't pay for, obviously, if you don't make it 
as far, but all the tickets were already set, organized, ready to rock before we even played game one for all the way through the whole series. That's smart. Yeah, that is smart. Yeah. yeah. And they know that's an organization that knows what they're doing. Then they're yeah. done that, right? We want these guys to have the least amount of worry other than the baseball game. You know, they're also, there's more media days and stuff like that. And, and, but at the end of the day, when you're in the playoffs, you're jazzed up, you're excited to be there. So the, the only, the only detriment that we ever had in the playoffs was when we swept the Yankees, the, the, we had like six or seven days off or whatever it was. It was wild. Yeah. We had guys come up from, uh, from Lakeland, uh, to kind of scrimmage in an empty Comerica park. It was, it was the weirdest thing ever. We're out on, in playing a scrimmage game on Comerica on the field with no fans. And for us, we're used to the place, you know, having at least 30,000, you know, yeah. what I mean? like on the day game. <laughs> yeah. So it's like you go from playing the Yankees to the loudest crowd uh, that I ever saw in Detroit uh, when we beat the Yankees to nobody in the stands trying to practice, like trying to simulate that it's impossible. And we came out a little flat against San Francisco. Now, yeah. hats off to them. They they beat uh, uh, the Cardinals in a seven-game series like cutthroat. Like right towards the very end, the, the Cardinals probably, they had it, and then San Francisco beat them, you know. So uh, they came off of right out of that kind of mindset of the wildness to where we were on like a eight-day or seven-day no competition we play every day in baseball. That's the longest stretch we had off for the whole year. Yeah, that's longer far. than the all-star and then we go break. Play the yeah. Whole series. yeah, yeah. That must have driven Jim Leland. I mean, what did I mean? Do you remember how he re- was responding to any of that? Like trying to keep you guys, you know, keyed up and and in that in that frame. We of were mind? all trying to. I mean, we were, and it's it's not an excuse. Sure. I think it's just, it's just the, the way reality, it is. Yeah. Right? Uh, we all were doing everything in our power that we knew 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 how to do to be ready for those games, you know, but even Verlander came out and got hit around a little bit in game one. And that was kind of like, ugh, you know, yeah. here's in, in that time off. It's just tough. You're not going to the ballpark with the same mentality every day. As hard as you try, it's impossible, you know? So that was, that was probably, uh, one of the harder, uh, harder things that, that we had to, to do. And, and we, we just couldn't get it done even as, as good a guys as we had and as professional as uh, those guys were, it's just tough to lay off baseball that long and then go play at the highest level on planet earth. It's not easy. Oh, and you're taking that time off. And we, right, right at the... we lost in four games. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> I, remember. I was at game four. <laughs> yep. It was really cold. <laughs> I, I still have bad feelings about Pablo Sandoval every time I think of him. <laughs> yeah. 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 And And it was, you know, we just couldn't, we couldn't get it back on track quick enough. You know, the last two games we were starting to play better baseball, but it just, if we could have won game three, you know, that might've been a different series game one and game two, just, we weren't there yet, you know, and it's just part of life. You know, we, we look back and we say, you know, we, we did everything we thought we could do. uh, And they just beat us. Yep. And, you know, and people, you know, fans will argue about these things for years about, you know, should Benoit have thrown the change up to Ortiz, all these little things. But, you know, those are the moments that stand out. And it's it's just it's the accumulation of all the little moments that happen in every one of those games that it's, you know, any every everything could have hinged on any 
on any moment. You know, it's only in retrospect yeah. that we kind of apply that kind of meaning to this pitch or that pitch because it didn't go right. So we're all trying to explain it to ourselves. And if you throw him, uh, if you'd have thrown the fastball and Ortiz hit that out, why didn't you throw your changeup? That's your yeah. better pitch. I know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, like, so <laughs> yep. Ortiz, is, it, it's, it's basically – that's what makes kind of the legend though. Like guys like Ortiz in the playoffs, right? He had a way to come up with the big hit and who knows if, if Ben Wall throws the fastball, he probably was either going to foul it off or something and get to the next pitch regardless. Yeah. Right. It's not yeah. like, Oh, if he'd have thrown the fastball, he was out. Right. Right. Does it, would that have changed? And maybe he hits a double in the gap on something else or walks. Somebody. Like you can't go back and say, well, he shouldn't have thrown his his best pitch. Yeah, all that well, stuff that is just madness. Yeah, that's madness, isn't it? Just trying to you know trying to think your way out of stuff that's already happened. <laughs> this is no point. That, and you see it like the Seahawks. Oh they yeah. Didn't give the ball to Lynch. That's yep. the bread and butter right there. Yeah. Go with your bread and butter in the in the crunch time. If they beat you on your bread and butter, tip the cap. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I don't have a problem with the change up there. Hey, that's my bread and butter pitch. That's what I need to go to in the clutch situation. Let me tell you this. David Ortiz has driven in a lot of runs in his life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yep. it's, not like, it's, it's not like it was Ozzy Smith up there who clipped him. You know what I mean? Yep. That's one so, of the greats of got, all time. He's got yeah. slider bat speed, and you threw the changeup, right? David Ortiz, it's not like it was uh, uh, something – it's just it's just part of baseball. It's part of the beauty of the game. The moments that happen, the big moments, the the things that you remember that stand out, right? Yeah, yep. Those are the things that end up defining, yep, defining things. Do you have any uh, particular memories of Jim Leland? I mean, we're we're all huge fans. Um, did, I mean, what was his his impression on you um, as a, as a player for him when you first? Yeah, uh, Leland never said a lot uh, to me. He kind of let me play. I think he knew. Uh, even when I, as I came up and he watched me play, he's like, I know what I'm going to get out of this guy every day. I don't need to say a lot to him yeah. uh, to get the results. And if he saw something in my game or something, you know, he noticed, he just pull you over to the side and say, uh, Hey, you know, maybe think about this next time. He had a very subtle way of, of staying out of guys ways and, t- and he trusted his other coaches, which is a, uh, one of, parts of his success you know he he wouldn't go against what mac would tell me hitting which you see managers do you know you see managers that don't trust the guys around them as much as leland trusted his guys gene lamont and you know all the different people uh that he worked with he really fed into those guys and gave them uh a role that they could be proud of doing it wasn't like he was the power-hungry manager that he needed to rule over everybody because those guys aren't as good, right? You see that all the time. Those managers who want to micromanage everybody and say, oh, we need to do this with the hitting, we need to do this. You see that more in college and stuff. But even at the big league level, you know, I think one of his assets was understanding his strengths and then trusting his guys to help produce results. Now, if something wasn't going right, sure. he would address the team he would address the team with, with what we needed to do as a team. Yeah. You know, it wasn't as much an individual, Hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z because that's why we're failing. It was always going back to the team. And that's where he, his managerial skills were very strong. You know, how to keep a team united, 
sometimes he would he would get everybody pissed off at him to make us play better. <laughs> and he knew how to do that. Yeah. You know? and, he, and there's all and that he, experience, very, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was okay with being the bad guy, which for most people would blow their mind, especially in today's world. You know, I want to cater to these all-stars and make sure that they're well pampered. He didn't, he didn't care who you were. You know what I mean? Like he already he had Barry Bonds. If, if he needed, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If he needed to get under somebody's skin a little bit to motivate him, he wasn't afraid to do it. And I think oh. that's kind of what separates him. And you see it. If you, anybody that's, that's seen a Jim Leland interview, he knows they, they should know that that man cares about winning baseball games and the, all the other stuff around it doesn't matter to him. Like yeah. how do how do we win this baseball game? That's what he cared about, and I think he also was uh, uh, very good uh, at managing bullpens, and that might have been some of his NL experience too. You know, I think he did a very good job for for what we had, and he trusted guys, and he gave the ball to the right guy in the right position, and also knowing when to pull the starters, things of that nature. I yeah. thought he was exceptionally good at. Yeah, that's and and how to shake a lineup up. He, yeah. He's kind of, you know, they talk about a lot of these guys, these managers now, like uh, 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 that, oh, all of a sudden Rizzo's hitting two-hole for the Cubs. Oh, sure. Well, Joe Leland Madden. has been doing that for years. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like both. Leland was, has been doing that before it was even popular. Yeah, that's interesting. You see a guy like, like I know Bruce Bochy, who's another kind of old school guy who's got a ton of experience as a manager, does that kind of thing quite a bit as well. More willing to kind of play with the lineup, more willing to make a you know to make a change if if he feels like you know they need a little spark and that kind of thing. Yeah, Leland what? was stupid enough. He hit me in the three hole one time. <laughs> how'd, how'd it go that day? <laughs> good, really good. I think I hit a I got a, a double and a, <laughs> uh, drove it a couple runs. <laughs> That's awesome. He could feel there it. You go. But he was, he, you know, the other thing about Leland that I always admired and respected, and I think that most outsiders looking in wouldn't realize it is he as a player he always had your back good bad ugly whatever it was if you played for jim leland you could count on if you were playing hard and working at it he would have your back through thick and through thin in the media with other people he never threw guys under the bus it was always you could count on him to have your back as bad as it was, even if you're getting sent to AAA, whatever, right? He was a guy who was there, the the commander that, the, a true leader. You know, he's a true leader. He's one of those guys that yeah. he's got his guys back, and he doesn't he doesn't get to choose the guys on his team. Got to play with what. But you when you when you play, you could play with what you got if you play the game the right way, and that's what he always liked about me. I was out there, you know dirt ball, uh, blue collar guy, which is his bread and butter anyway. That's kind of the way he is, right? So he loved that about me and, and gave me a lot of opportunities. And I'll always be grateful to him for giving me opportunities and trusting in me enough to give me uh, the opportunities he did give me. Oh, that's great. You know, it takes people so long, I find, um, you know, in leadership positions to learn how not to overdo it, you know, to learn that light touch, to learn to, you know, to delegate and, you know, and to have the right people in place with the right plan and to stay out of their way unless you're absolutely needed. That's really interesting to hear you kind of put Jim Leland in those terms. Cause that's, um, you know, that's 
like that's the highest level of, of management, you know, of, of, and I think sometimes people forget that it is, you know, it is a job. It is a workplace that you're in there. Um, and if Jim Leland is in there yelling and screaming at somebody every day, eventually that kind of effect wears off, <laughs> you know, like you got to know how to, how to make these things happen with the lightest possible touch without, you know, wearing people down. Okay, I'm yeah, just going to bring this no up. Doubt. And that comes with the experience, you know. I just Fire want to bring Ashley. up my <laughs> favorite. I just want to bring up one of my favorite Leland memories because Andy, you were actually a part of it, um, and it's probably the greatest Jim Leland ejection of all time. And it happened when you were at first base in June of 2011. And I want to oh, know yeah. if you remember that at all because it's like it gets played ad nauseum. And Leland is actually one of the most ejected managers of all time. But like this, <laughs> this particular ejection was just like his like gold medal ejection, and it just happened to happen when you were on plate. So I'm just curious if you remember it at all, or if it kind of got lost in all was the it, other ones. It was versus the Jays. It might have been a plate. Did I bunt the ball and beat it out to first, and they called me safe, and then called yeah. me out? Yeah, they yeah, reversed yeah. the call, and then Leland mimicked. And the Leland they reversed the mind. call, and this was before, this was before instant replay. Yeah, yeah. So the guy, the umpire, called me safe, and then he did an out sign. Yes. Like he clearly called me safe, cool, and then he did an out. It out was almost instant. Right like he changed his mind like right away. It was like safe out. Yeah. And then Leland is like, obviously that's a point where a manager's going to be like, what are you doing out here? You called him safe. Yeah. You have to go with what you call first. Like, I don't care what you called him safe. You got to go with your, that's like saying strike ball. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make sense. Cause technically he reversed his, his call there. Yeah. He reversed his own call yeah. basically immediately. Yeah. So and that was dying... before we the instant replay and stuff. Yeah. Are you dying? But laughing? he was, he was great. He was great at ejections. Oh, another good <laughs> Leland story. Uh, with Jared Weaver threw over Alex Avila's head. It was after uh, Oh yeah. Uh, Carlos hit a bomb. Maglio hit a home run to left field. And, you know, typical Maglio, he wasn't like, he was just kind of looking at it to see if it's fair or foul yeah. as he's kind of trotting down to first base in his little Maglio steps, you know. <laughs> and then Weaver thought he was pimping it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so Maglio crossed and, and Weaver starts chirping at him. Uh Magdo and Carlos are good, uh, 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 good friends, you know? And, uh, so Carlos, when he hit his home run, he is just like yelling at him. He didn't even, he hit the ball threw the bat down and is instantly, he's not even watched the ball to see if it's out of the yard. He already knew it. He's yep. instantly looking at Weaver and like chirping. Like, oh hey, yeah. You know, you, we're not doing that. So then Avila gets up and Weaver throws the ball over Avila's head. Like, come on. Yeah, you know that's there's no need for that. If you want to plunk a guy, throw at his legs, you know, throw at his at his body. Oh, and he was he throws it like mind. right over Avila's head. Yeah, Jared and Weaver was losing it. Weaver he just, was so hot. <laughs> oh, he's he's lost his mind out there, and he's on the mound yelling and yelling and yelling. <laughs> and Leland, it, at the time, I don't, you know, he's uh, sixty years old, whatever. Uh, he's he goes out there and he's yelling at him. If you want some. Come and get it. <laughs> oh, he's wow. running out there as the benches start clearing. Oh, and he's no. yelling at Weaver, let's go. Oh, if you my want God. It, come and get it, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. It was, it was just classic Leland. Like, he, Leland would probably have fought him. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Leland, Weaver 
is like six foot six and like six five, two hundred and forty pounds in great shape. <laughs> and he didn't care. But that's part of what I mean, like having your guys back. Like he threw it at Alex's catcher. He wasn't gonna have that. Like, no, that's not gonna happen. You know, and as Weaver's going away, Leland's like, Get over here. <laughs> oh wow. That's so awesome. Yeah, because, I mean, he, he threw it over his head, too. It wasn't like he got mad and, like, decided to plunk him in the butt. I mean, that was dangerous. That was a dangerous yeah. pitch. Ooh. Oh, that's yeah. a great and, story. And that's part of, you know, he, he's got his players back. And and I don't know, you know, sometimes we have this out-of-body experience. If you looked at it in reality, if you if you match Leland against Weaver, uh, Leland probably shouldn't even been saying anything, but that's, just, <laughs> that's his personality. He didn't care. You know, he would have taken a, a beating if he had to for his guy. Yeah. Oh, he's a beaut. Uh, I love that guy. <laughs> he's the best. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, you know, we've had you for oh, well over an hour now. Um, so I think we'll let you go. Um, is there anything you wanted to promote, though? Because we, we know you had a couple of charity events coming up pretty soon. Well, you know, I'm involved in as many charities as possible to whatever extent I can get in. Uh, Boys and Girls Club of Troy. Uh, I'm a uh, uh, board member on that. Uh, uh, we have uh, New Day Foundation for Families is something that I feel really strongly about. If you look both look up New Day uh, Foundation for Families, it's a great organization that helps people with cancer diagnoses. Uh, we're doing the the autistic awareness with the pizza guy. Uh, oh, yeah coming up too. Uh, he's got a podcast. He, I was on his show. Oh, awesome. Uh, really oh, yeah. good guy. Uh, Freddie, the pizza man. Uh, he's yeah. Freddie. Yeah. Freddie, the pizza, pizza man. He's, uh, you know, does a lot in the community, uh, autism awareness, things of that nature. He, to me, anybody that's out there trying to support something, that's a good cause. Uh, that's a just cause like these people do as much as the media tries to flip stuff and say that, you know, America's so bad and these people, all these people are so bad in America, blah, blah, blah. We can never get on the same page. I think if you just really look at, at in detail of what just normal people in the community do on a daily basis, you'll see the, the complete opposite. And it doesn't get promoted enough. It doesn't, there's not enough light shine on it. I'm talking to even teachers, yeah. you know, that are paying for their own, their own oh, materials yeah. that are making, making $30,000 a year buying their kids construction paper and glue. Yeah. Like those are things. If, if our society was really as bad as what the media says it is, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's like anything, you know, the, the worst, the worst stories will get em- emphasized because they're just, you know, they're, they pop and, and that's kind of how it goes. But yeah, I mean, day to day life, you know, you see people helping each other out all around. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a different perspective on the ground. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. And you can always donate your time. Absolutely. You know, that's one, one thing people don't realize. It's not all about monetary donations. A lot of it's time. A lot of these organizations need people to volunteer, to help, right? So you got to have the, you got the money. You, sometimes you need the money, people, but you also need uh, people to donate time, ideas, maybe their skill set. Yeah. You know, uh, donate your skill set. If you're, if you're good on a computer, maybe you can help somebody uh, develop their website, things like that, uh, that go a long ways that a lot of people think I ain't got time for that or whatever. You can just make some time. Think about how you can help an organization. Just ask, Hey, how can I get involved and how can I help? 
you know, what time is we're all we're all busy. Yep. And that's what okay, yeah, last, last topic, topic of the day, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it drives me nuts and I always do my best to be on time. People, you know, they'll say, Oh, sorry, I was late, I was busy. Well, if you looked at my schedule, you'd be like, Wow, that's a busy schedule. Yeah. You know, two toddlers, two businesses. Uh, on a podcast at 11 o'clock at night, nice. like, like <laughs> you're never, it, everybody's busy. So mm-hmm. respect other people's time, you know, things yeah. do happen. Yeah. Well, the beauty of cell phones is you send a text. Hey, I'm going to, I'm running 10 minutes behind. Okay, cool. But don't just not do something. You know, <laughs> that's yeah. my thing. It's just that like that. take like, responsibility, you know, don't waste other people's time and, and be responsible yeah. to the people who are giving you their time, you know? Yeah. And, and, and things happen. Right. Sure. I, I'm a, everybody's aware of that, but on a consistent basis, just like a baseball, just be as consistent as you can to try to, uh, you know, be on time, respect other people, respect other people's ideas and thoughts. I am what some people would consider. They think that I would be a know-it-all, <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, I'm trying to learn like everybody else. That's why I get, uh, people's input on my podcast. I'm getting coaches, parents, scouts, you know, it's not just me sitting up there saying what I know. I need to get these other people's knowledge because they've been in a different position than I have that can yeah. be very relevant and helpful to people. Yeah. And the best teachers are always people who learn the best. You know, it's, it's people who are committed to constant learning and constant kind of striving to get better. Um, those are the people who are, who right. are in that in that mind frame, you know. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of the podcast, is it on a regular release schedule? Where can people find it? Yeah, just uh, if you go to, uh, I got a couple Facebook pages. My person that runs my social media puts it out on Facebook. It's on iTunes. Uh, it's on a whole a, a gamut of. It's on uh, Spotify. That's sites. where I found it. So. Yeah, so Spotify, iTunes. You just look up "Get Your Game Right," and and it'll be on there. Also, if you go to my Facebook page, uh, you can go to my Instagram account. Uh, you can go. We haven't been as involved in Twitter. Oh, uh, avoid it if you be. can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so scary I, I, some days. Know. Instagram's nice and okay. friendly. It's all pictures. It's so much less. <laughs> yeah. It's so much less hard on your soul. <laughs> yeah. Well, and 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 what people don't realize is is words hold more weight than anything. Yeah. What people say in the, the the era we're living in, it's so easy to just sit back behind a laptop or a phone and and type something about somebody that you'd never say their face. Oh, yeah. well, I had to tell my mom when I got the big leagues, mom, just get off the internet. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. You're not, you're not going to see good stuff. Don't set up an Andy. They'll, they'll try to demean character. Yeah. Oh man. That's a whole, that's a whole show topic of his own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and my thing is we're in America. We have freedom of speech. If people feel like they have the need to do that, go for it. I call them haters. And what I love about when you start getting a decent following of haters, that means you're doing something in life. Yeah. Yeah. That means yeah. you're starting to do something. If people are talking crap about you, it's because they don't like where you're at and the success you're having. Yep. And really they don't like where they're at. And yeah, that's a, it's in a way to avoid, avoid doing something yeah. about it. Yeah. I always say, Hey, if you want to, if you want to talk crap on me to make, and it makes you feel better about yourself. Oh, I'm happy to do that for you. You can do it all day if it makes you it makes you feel better about yourself. That's what my goal, mission, and, and on planet Earth is to make people feel better about themselves and overcome obstacles. Right? Yeah. So if you're having a bad day and if you need to release a little stress by uh, 
uh, saying something or talking crap, I'm like, if that's your outlet, go for it on me. Just don't bring it towards my family, please. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because you know? you'll walk away from it with no no thought. And if if it makes them feel better, I guess whatever you know, whatever works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Andy Dirks, man, it's really been awesome talking to you. I was, um, you, you kind of fought through some of our technical issues to stick with us, and I appreciate it. Um, it's yeah, been thank you so much. Awesome conversation. Yeah, no, thank you guys. It's uh, been an honor to be on the show, and you guys are doing great stuff. Stay after it. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll talk to you shortly. Uh, hopefully, we can get you back on again before too long. Cool, cool. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Have Andy. Night. Have a great night. You too. Bye.